your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 as we are continuing our studies in the life of Christ. And this, the topic we're on so far right at this point is the, the resurrection. And after this one we'll look at one more, the second half of this particular chapter. Because again, it's a, it's a great chapter, a great way to end the study in the resurrection. It's a colorful chapter. There's a lot of emotions in it, a lot of feelings, a lot of really uh, neat things to glean from, uh, especially uh, as a believer. But I entitled the message, Come and Dine, because it's an invitation from Christ to come and to have that intimate fellowship with Him. Now, this is the seventh appearance of Jesus after He resurrected that's recorded in the Scripture. And it took place a couple of weeks or more after the resurrection by the Sea of Galilee. But here in our text, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Scripture says it was the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples as a group after he resurrected, according to verse 14. And he worked a mighty miracle on the Sea of Galilee. It was the only miracle that's recorded after his resurrection. After Thomas's great declaration of my Lord and my God, it seems like that would have been the perfect way to finish the Gospel of John. But then we come to chapter 21 and it kind of looks as it was added as if it was added on. Chapter 20 verse 31 would seem to be the perfect ending for the whole gospel of John. But chapter 21 deals with a miraculous fishing uh, experience followed by some words from Jesus to his disciples on that particular occasion. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21. And John writes, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So we learn from our passage here the different characters of these disciples of Christ. It says, after these things, that is, after the resurrection appearances, it says, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way, or this is how it happened, that he showed himself. After Jesus appeared to Thomas, the disciples headed back home to Galilee. Since the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, why should they stay any longer there and, and, have, and you know, risk themselves anymore? Uh, to possible further action from the authorities. Besides, Jesus had already told them to meet him in Galilee. So it wouldn't be long until they were all back in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So here we find them back, though, at their old familiar stomping grounds by the shore of Lake Galilee. They went there just like they were told. But they waited. And, you know, a lot of times we get tired of waiting. Jesus hadn't showed up like he said he was going to, he was going to meet them there. But as time passed and nothing happened, Peter got, I guess, antsy. And that was Peter's character. He was impulsive. And so he made a decision on his own. And he was tired of sitting around, doing nothing, so he was going to do something. And the only thing he knew best was to fish. Look at verse 3 now. And it says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were with him at this time. We find them working with their own hands. They were hard workers. 
John doesn't tell us why Peter decided to go fishing. And as always, people and their, uh, have their different ideas as to why. Now, some say that Peter was within his rights because, you see, he had to make a living. He had to pay his bills. So the best way to do that, the best way to get money was to go fishing. So to, in Peter's eyes, why sit around? Why do nothing? Get busy. Others believe that Peter had been called from that kind of life. You know, Paul said that, you know, uh, the, the old has passed away and everything has become new. So some say it was wrong for Peter to go back to it, the old life of fishing. Besides, when he went fishing, Peter took six other men with him. So if Peter was wrong in going back to the old life, that is the fish, all the others were wrong too. And it's not a good thing when a believer leads others astray. Did you ever wonder or ever notice that at least seven of the 12 disciples were probably fishermen? Why did Jesus call so many fishermen to follow him? Well, for one thing, fishermen are determined. They're courageous. And those are the kind of people Jesus needs to follow him. Brave people that will follow him. They're also dedicated to one thing. And they're not easily distracted. Real fishermen don't quit. Whether Peter and his friends were right or wrong, we don't know. You know, we don't know for sure. But we do know this. Their efforts at fishing, here in our text, that, that is their old life, they were in vain. They accomplished nothing. They had forgotten what Jesus had told them in John fifteen five, when he said, without me, you can do nothing. They worked all night. They fished all night and they didn't catch a thing. This shows us the fruitless results and the wasted time of serving in self-will. And this is something all Christian servants need to pay attention to. The sad and foolish idea of trying to serve Jesus in your own strength, in your own way, in your own flesh, they will result in accomplishing nothing. And this is a lesson that we learn here from Peter's fishing experience. Now, Peter, like I said, was impatient which seems to be his characteristic. So instead of waiting quietly and submissively for the Lord to come, like he said he would, Peter decides that he's going to pass the time by fishing instead of being still and just waiting on the Lord. Peter had to have remembered what had happened a couple of years earlier when Jesus called him into full-time ministry in Luke chapter 5. Because on that particular fishing experience, Peter had, finished, had fished all night and caught nothing. But Jesus had turned his failure into a success. In Luke 5, we have a similar story. Like I said, one day Jesus was preaching on the shore of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. There were huge crowds there to listen to Jesus preach the word of God. But the crowds were so big that Jesus had to get in one of the boats. And, and, and stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Peter, who owned the boat, he said, launch out into the deep. Push out into deeper water. So Jesus sat in the boat, and from that distance, he taught the crowds from inside the boat. It says, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out to where it's deeper. Let down your nets, and you will catch some fish. But notice when, and this isn't the only time, but notice when, when Jesus gives a command, he also gives a promise. He said, Peter, he said, go out into the deep, let down your nets. That's the command. And he says, you'll catch some fish. There's the promise. Jesus never gives us idle you know, talk. He never you know, gives us idle commands without a blessing connected to them. 
So Peter said, Master, we have worked hard all of last night and we didn't catch a thing. But Lord, if you say so, we'll let down our nets again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. The other disciples had to come with their boats and help bring in the fish. And pretty soon both boats were filled with fish to the point they were on the verge of sinking. And then when Peter, when Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees in Luke. And he fell before Jesus and he said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I am too much of a sinner to be around you. Because he as well as the others were so blown away by the number of fish that they had caught. This was their problem. And we all need to remember this. In Luke 5, 5, Peter said to the Lord, this is the, this is the key words, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Anything that starts with we will end in nothing when Jesus is not in the boat. Maybe it was Peter's impulsiveness and self-confidence. Maybe it was the old man rearing his ugly head again. Peter was sincere and Peter worked hard. But you know what? It's not how sincere you work and how hard you work. You see, it's who you're working with. If Christ is not a part of that work, there will be no results. And that's what Peter experienced. This is like too many believers when it comes to serving the Lord. They sincerely believe that they're doing the will of God. They believe they're doing it God's way, but their work is in vain. There's no fruit. Nothing happens. You see, they're serving God without the the Lord's direction. So they can't expect a blessing from the Lord. God doesn't bless our plans. He doesn't bless our agendas or our programs or our self-efforts. He blesses His Word. And so Peter said, Nevertheless, at your word, I will lower the nets. And that's when he had the success. These same men, experts at their craft, worked all night in a boat, dragging around a cold, wet, fishy net, and they didn't catch a thing. These same men were some of the first founders of the Church of Jesus Christ that exists to this day. Now, these guys were unknowns. They were nobodies. They came out of some unknown part of the world, and they had turned the world upside down for Jesus. As Paul said, these were the unlearned and the ignorant men according to the flesh. These are the insignificant and unprincipled. But you see, these are the ones that God chose. He chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And He chose the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Uh, Those are the ones that God has chosen and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers to be important. First Corinthians chapters 20 uh, verse 26. They boldly challenged. They boldly challenged head on the deceitful deceitful systems of their day. These disciples, they challenged the, the deceitful philosophies of their day. They shut the mouths of those who supported those deceitful systems and those deceitful philosophies. And and. And and they did it through the teaching and preaching of the cross. These were the men who at Ephesus and Athens and Rome emptied out the heathen temples of of their worshipers. They turned away multitudes from idol worship to a new and better faith in Jesus Christ. These were the men that did that. These were the men that Jesus made disciples. Now Jesus knew where the disciples were. And he knew what they were doing. 
He knew that Peter was flirting with the idea of giving up his service to the Lord and going back to the old business, the old way of life. And he knew that others would follow along with whatever Peter did. They weren't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for them. You know, Paul said, there is none who seeks after God. When Adam and Eve sinned, who, came, who went looking for him? God. Adam, where are you? What have you done? They didn't go looking for God. These men were not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for them. We never look for Jesus on our own free will without the help of the Holy Spirit. And if spiritual blessing depended on us looking for the Lord, we'd never experience any blessing. The reason that there's blessing is that Jesus looks for us and often when we least expect it. So the Lord allowed them to have a totally disappointing, fruitless night. Not catching one fish. And if you're a true fisherman, you know there's nothing more disappointing than not catching any fish. You know, the time you spent going, the time you spent fishing, the, 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 the money, the preparation, you really get bummed out when you don't catch any fish. Look at verse 4 now. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So the morning comes, they see Jesus standing on the shore, but at the moment, they, they don't know. The disciples don't know that it was Jesus standing there. And then Jesus asks them something in verse 5. Look what he says. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. They had to admit to this person on shore that they had failed. They didn't, they didn't catch anything. But again, the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. This is what Jesus asked us when we have been trying to do things in our own power, when we've been going on, on our own way, walking in our own path. He asks us basically the same thing. Have you caught anything? Really, have you been successful in what you're doing? Are you satisfied in your life? Are you satisfied with the way things are going? Are you being fruitful? Are you experiencing the blessings of God? And he asks these questions so that we might recognize we're empty. What I'm doing isn't working. My wisdom isn't, isn't wise enough. You know, I'm not, I'm not meeting my needs and I'm failing. And he asks us these questions so that we might recognize that and that we would turn to Jesus. Verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Jesus said, hey guys, can I make a suggestion? He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. Now, put yourself in their shoes. These guys are experts at what they're doing. How do you like what might be considered a rookie to you to come and tell you how to do your job? I can just, you know, kind of think about what Peter could have said. Look at the other side. Who does this guy think he is? Can you tell us how to fish? What does he know about fishing? This is, this is our expertise. This is what we do for a living. We've been doing this most of our life. Hey, we know this lake like the back of our hands. Instead, they did as Jesus said. And guess what happened? They couldn't pull up the net because of all the fish. 
we need to remember this. That even, think of it, this was a familiar setting to these guys. This is where they made their living. They knew this lake really well. A familiar setting. But here's the point. Even in a familiar setting, the Lord can show you things you've never seen before. He can make you aware of incredible possibilities. Notice what it took to turn failure into success. Just the width of the boat. Now, I don't know how wide the boat was. Let's say it was five or six feet wide. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot to make a difference. A big difference. Turning emptiness into fullness. It's just a matter of just a few feet. You know, I could hear them saying to also, why don't you cast your net in on the, on the opposite side of the boat? Really? You know, from here to there, that's going to make a big difference? What's so special about the right side of the boat? And, and I can, you know, again, I guess I can put myself in their place trying to figure out what's, why? Well, maybe the water is deeper on that right side. Maybe it's colder and that's where they're at. They're down deep. Maybe there's less weeds on that side and, and, and it would keep us from entangling our nets in the weeds and maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe Jesus threw some chum bait over there and that's where all the fish are gathering. Why the right side? Why? Jesus said so. We get all caught up in the whys. Trying to figure out why would He do that? Why would He say that? Why would He lead me in that direction? Just go where He sends you and come when He calls you. That's the bottom line. We don't need to question God. Warren Wiersbe says, we don't live on explanations, we live on promises. You know, when you go to the doctor and, and let's say you, you, you break an arm and, or a leg and, you know, and, it's, and it's hurting and it's, you're in a lot of pain, do you want the doctor to explain to you why it's hurting and what happened? And, and No. Doctor, am I going to get better? Yeah, that's all I want to know. Bear the explanation. Tell me I'm going to get better. That's the way it is with Christ. No explanations. Just the promises of God. Secondly, are you going to question the creator? The creator who, who created the seas and the fish that lives in them? And again, think about other passages. If, if Jesus knows when one sparrow falls from the sky... And he knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows the numbers of the, scar, the stars in the sky. And he knows them all by name. Don't you think he would know where to catch the fish? Again, here's another point. It's not where the work is to be done or how it's to be done. It's whether it's being done under Jesus' direction and in obedience to him. Or is it being done by your wisdom, your plan, your self-will? Doing what you want to do. Maybe Jesus is talking to you this morning through this story. You're aware of your emptiness. You're aware of your failure. You've been trying to do things. You've been trying to get ahead. You've been trying to do it on your own and you haven't been successful. That will always be the case. And maybe Jesus is saying to you this morning, I have work for you to do. I have a plan for your life. I have a way for you to do it. And I want you to stop what you're doing and listen to me and do what I ask you to do. 
You know, he told his disciples, how, how can you guys call me Lord and you don't do what I say? So here, Jesus first asked, have you guys caught anything? Then he commanded, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Then they obeyed. And guess what? Then came the blessing. You ought to remember that recipe and write it down. A command, obedience equals blessing. A command equals obedience, or, or plus obedience equals blessing. It works every time. There's one more point to be made here. When they first saw Jesus on the shore, nobody recognized him. Nobody knew who he was. But when they obeyed his instructions and, they, and shared in the, in the blessing of the fish, oh, they discovered, verse 7 says, it was the Lord. Have you discovered him to be Lord yet? If not, here's how it's made. Here's that, how that discovery is made. As you obey the Lord's commands, you will experience the fruitfulness of a Christ-directed service. Now, Jesus might seem far away from you. He might seem unreal to you, which is natural, because sin separates, from God, separates us from Him. It makes Him feel like He's far away, even though He's always with you. It's the sin that brings the distance between me and God. He can be sitting, well, he is sitting right next to me, but because of my sin, I feel distant from him because he's holy. He's holy. He might seem far away, but he's right there. He's always with us, always. But if you'll obey him, he'll work in your life and you'll find him just as surely as the disciples did when they obeyed him at the Lake of Galilee. And if you're a Christian, you have to follow his leading. How can you not? If you're not a Christian, you have to turn from your sin and call on him as your savior. Jesus said, come to me, all you who, are, who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, finding Christ does not mean everything is going to be okay. It doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out okay. It might even mean a life of poverty, a life of hardship, even a life of suffering. But it also means finding the one who is alone, totally faithful as our Savior and friend. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said, Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So Peter, with his natural-born impulsiveness, he quickly puts on his outer garment because they would take those garments off when they were working because they, they can get tangled around their feet, and they just kind of got in the way. But he takes that garment, he puts it back on, and he jumps into the water, and he's heading for shore. He wanted to get to Jesus you know, Peter, when he denied the Lord, it, it, it broke Peter's heart. Because he promised, oh Lord, I'd, I'd never deny you. I, I could never do that. And when he did, you know, I'm sure that he's, he wanted that opportunity to, to make things right. And so he's thinking, man, he says, here he is again. He says, I'm not letting him get away this time. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make things right with Jesus. And we'll see that in the, the, the second half next week. But he, he goes out there, he recognizes it's the Lord. And, and, and what a difference now. He's jumping into the water, going to the shore because he wants to get to Jesus. That last fishing trip in Luke, he said, Lord, depart from me because, because I am a sinful man. Then the other six followed in their boat 
and they brought the, uh, the nets full of fish to shore. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, then as soon as they had come to land, they saw fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Let's finish the, the, up to 14. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I like in verse 11, it says that they were full of large fish, 153. No small ones, no little all large fish, making the point. You can't go wrong. As soon as they get to the shore, there was this fire going. And there were some bread and fish on the fire. And Jesus says to the disciples, hey, guys, bring some of those fish over here you just caught. So Peter goes up on shore. He's dragging this net of heavy, large fish to shore, 153 to be exact. And the net hadn't torn. And then he tells them in the old King James, come and dine. Here he says, come and have breakfast. But I love the, the come and dine. None of the disciples dared to ask, as we read, that who are you? Even though they knew it was the Lord. And we read that Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And again, it says that this was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples since he was, you know, since the resurrection. Again, the disciples had been fishing all night with no success. They were hungry. But when they came to land, they found that Jesus had already made a fire and was fixing something for them to eat. And then he invites them to come and eat. Even in his resurrected glory, he was still thinking of the physical needs of his disciples. And he was busy providing for them. And verse 13 says that he served them. And you know what? He continues to do the same this morning. Paul experienced this truth. That's why he could write, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his riches and glory, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. You see, we have everything that we need in Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 9 and 10, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Speaking of Christ, so you also are complete through your relationship with Christ. This invitation that Jesus gave, this invitation uh, involves fellowship with Jesus. Not just to feed them. This wasn't just to meet their physical need because they were hungry. But this invitation was to have fellowship with the disciples in Christ. In the Bible, eating always suggests fellowship. For us, you know, it, it's, it's, it's pretty different today, especially in our fast-paced uh, world. You know, eating for a lot of people today is, uh, is eat and run. You know, it's pull up to the drive-thru, grab something, take off, and you, you steer with your knees, and, and you know, yeah, because how many of us have done that? You know, we're steering with our knees while we're feeding our face. We're on our way to our next destination. Run, run, run. You couldn't do that in the Bible times. It took time in those days to prepare a meal. And preparing a meal then was a, a, more, a much more lengthy process. And as a result, to eat with somebody was to have fellowship with that person. The Greek word koinonia means fellowship and communion. And they meant the same thing. When we invite somebody to communion, or we say, I'm going to take communion, it really means that we're going to take fellowship or that we're going to invite the other person to fellowship with us at the Lord's table. 
The church is just one great big fellowship. It's a fellowship of Christians with the Lord and with one another. And our Lord invites us, He welcomes us to this table so that we can fellowship with Him and with each other in the communion service and in the daily practice of our life together. Some Christians are going to heaven miserably. Others are going to go with the joy of heaven in their hearts and on their faces. Now you might say, what difference does it make as long as I get to heaven? That's all I care about. Well, the difference is is that those going to heaven with joy on their faces, they have learned to come and dine with Jesus and with each other. You see, the Christian life isn't an isolated life. It's a life that's shared with other people and where our joy is in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have the joy of the Lord, make the time to be with Him. Turn off the TV. Put down the useless books or magazines. Stop the useless activities. Take, up that, uh, take that precious time that could be spent with Jesus Christ. Spend time with Jesus in His Word. Spend time with other Christians. And He will speak to you from His Word and He'll show you the meaning of true Christian fellowship. So He said, come and dine. What a wonderful invitation. God used it first when He invited Noah to join Himself inside the ark. God was in the ark. He said, come in, Noah. I love that. Because he was already in there waiting for Noah to come in. Jesus knew what they needed. Jesus provided it for them. But the disciples were a little unsettled by the Lord. Because it seems like the Lord might have been standing at a distance from them. Even though they knew it was him, they kept their distance. They were overwhelmed by him. They knew him, but it was in a new way. They felt like they should ask him, who are you? Even though they already knew who it was. He was the same, but not quite the same. They loved him, but they couldn't be with him like they had been before. You see, before they had always known him as more of a man than God. But now they were more aware of him as God than man. But to the Lord, he didn't want it to be this way. Jesus still and always wants that personal relationship with his children. So what does Jesus do? As always, he makes the first move. He always does. He breaks the ice with these guys. You could say, you know, he he said, hey, guys, come on over. Have something to eat. Now, again, this meal is very meaningful. Because when you ate a meal with somebody in that day, it meant a lot more than it does today. And we've already said that it meant to have communion and fellowship with that person. But it goes even deeper than that. And this meal was prepared by Jesus specifically to get a message across to the disciples. And I believe especially Peter. Something that they all needed to know. Something that we all need to know. But again, especially Peter. To eat a meal with somebody meant that you are at peace with that person. We see that Uh, symbolized in Genesis 26, 27 through 30. Remember Isaac and King Abimelech, they were feuding with each other over land and water rights. King Abimelech came to Isaac to make peace with him because he said, we have certainly seen the Lord is with you, Isaac. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Since we have not touched you and since we have not uh, since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. 
You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. They arose early in the morning, notice, and they swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. They were feuding, they ate this meal together and they walked away in peace. That's the picture we have with Christ. Secondly, a meal with somebody at that time was binding. That means whatever the peace was, whatever the argument, whatever happened, it was a binding agreement, it was forever. You see that in Joshua chapter 9. When Joshua, remember, he made the treaty with the Midianites? It says, The men of Israel took some of, their fret, some of their food, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. You remember, they were supposed to wipe out all the enemies, but they came and they tricked Joshua and the guys, so he couldn't hurt them. So he made this, he, he made this, this peace with them that would be forever. And that's the peace that we have with Jesus Christ. He says, You will be mine forever for all eternity a meal at that time was a means of reconciliation genesis chapter 31 we read that we see that laban and jacob were were arguing they were they were they were having a feud as well but they came together and they made a covenant and listen what they said you and i jacob and laban you and i they make a covenant and let it be a witness between you and me Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread and they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. So in closing, what we see Jesus doing here, eating a meal together is a sign of peace. It's forever. It's a sign of reconciliation. That's why Jesus probably appeared to his disciples after the resurrection and ate with them. And you know what? When we all get to heaven... And at the supper of the Lamb, that's what he's saying to us. It's binding. It's for all eternity. We've been reconciled to him, and we're at peace with him. So by eating this meal, he was saying, hey, guys, there's peace between us. Peter, regardless of what happened, you know, when you denied me, and the other guys, you know, when you all took off when I was, when I was crucified, he said, we're good. He said, there, 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 there's peace between us. And we're forever reconciled. It was Jesus' way of reassuring them, comforting them, and encouraging them that if they had failed, if they had failed Christ, guys, there's no hard feelings. There's no loss of relationship. He's saying... He's saying everything is good with us. We're good. And for those who have had that experience, of failing God, which I have. It's a beautiful invitation to come and to find peace again and reconciliation. And no, he says, Joe, we're good. Come and dine with me.
He said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, look, I stand at the door and knock. The door of your heart. He says, and if you hear my voice and open that door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. And with that invitation, the acceptance of that invitation, comes the same peace, the same reconciliation that lasts forever that we saw with Peter and the disciples, with Jesus on the shore of Galilee. The resurrection is the proof of all of those things. He came back, he resurrected the third day, showing that we can have that peace, that reconciliation forever. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, this beautiful passage. To know that, that our Lord doesn't hold grudges like we do. He doesn't get bitter with us. He doesn't chew us out. Why did you do that? Why did you backslide? He just says, come back. Come back. Come and dine. Let's make things right. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. Doesn't matter what you're doing now. He'll change all of that if you'll open the door. Open the door to your heart and you let him in. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if Christ's message has gotten to you as it did to Peter and the disciples, and you want to receive Christ, as your Lord and your Savior. Then you get up out of your seat. You make your way to the stairs up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.